Thank you for listening to the Lucy Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about us or to find other sermons and resources from us, visit our website at lucybaptist.com. today is in John chapter 12, verses 24 through 25. Give you a few minutes, or moments actually, to turn to that. John chapter 12, 24 and 25. And you can follow along on the screen if uh, you don't have it in your Bible. Reading from the NASB, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Good morning, everybody. How you doing this morning? It's really, really good for us to be back here. Um, we're always excited to come back to Lucy. Can I put this down over here? I guess that's okay. Um, we're always excited to be back at uh, Lucy to see everybody. And uh, this feels like home to us. When, um, when Ashley and I first got started in ministry and we were, you know, still living in seminary housing. When we came here, we felt like this became a home away from home for us. Um, and I don't know if it's me getting older. I'm not that old, I don't think. But, um, but relationships matter more and more and more to me the more that I age and the longer I'm in ministry. And the relationships that we have here are absolutely precious to us. And, uh, and I'm not sure, I really don't know if... Other people, when they leave a, a church to go minister elsewhere, if they keep the types of relationships that, that we still have, but we are eternally grateful for the relationships with so many people here and just so thankful for this church and thankful for the leadership, David and Hunter and Blake and others, and, uh, and just, again, grateful to be back. It, it feels like we're coming home and grateful to see the new, the new sanctuary and how the Lord is just continuing to bless the ministry here at Lucy. Um, I wanted to give just kind of an, an update to, to you all as well uh, from Catalyst. And I want to do it under three headings so that I can keep myself on track because otherwise I could, lose, I could lose this thing and it could go sideways quickly because there's just a lot that I could say. Uh, so I just want to keep it, I want to keep it under three headings. One is breadth, one is depth, and one is result. And you guys at Lucy have been a faithful partner church for years. And we are so incredibly grateful for that. And you've been the catalyst, pun not really intended, but you've, you've been the catalyst that has helped us grow. Because I took over the ministry in August of 2014, and we were at that point working in two countries, in Bolivia and in Indonesia. And this year, Lord willing, we're going to bridge into our ninth country uh, formally uh, that we'll be working in with over a thousand students. And so Lucy has been a part of seeing it grow from what it began as to what it is today. And we're just grateful for that. And part of that is that uh, good people come alongside the team like Jenny 
and like Brian and other people who, are, who have been volunteering like Katrina and who have helped the ministry like all of you that have gone on trips or prayed. Thank you for being faithful. You have helped this ministry grow. It has grown in breadth, but it's also, there's a depth to it that we can see in the lives of those who are being trained. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, which is sort of a, a bellwether chapter for us uh, at Catalyst, there's a, a passage that I'd like to read to you that I'm sure you're fairly familiar with. It's 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul says to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Of course, accurately handling, there's, a, um, there's an expression there that you also find in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that, that means straight. Keep your path straight. And literally, Paul is saying, cut straight with the word of God. That's why he's telling Timothy, be diligent to study so that you cut straight with the word. And I want to tell you, there are women and men all over the globe that Catalyst is training that are cutting straight with the word of God. And you know what happens when you start to go deep with Jesus? There's a result. Uh, we got a testimony, and I'm, I'm going to steal Jenny's thunder here, and I hope, I hope I don't steal it too badly, but we got a testimony of a lady that has been, she's being discipled in Bolivia through Angelica, and she, teaching the lesson uh, in, in multiplication, there was another lady that came to Christ as a result. That's, that's right, Jenny. Is that correct? In Guayara. What's that? The pastor's wife who came to Christ. Amen. See, what we're trying to see, this result here is multiplication, but people get trained and then they multiply. We're seeing churches being established and being planted that are reaching into the unreached places. There's another place in Bolivia, in northern Bolivia, that uh, we're working among an indigenous people group called the Cavineños. And one guy stood up after we went through biblical, theolo- biblical theology, and he said, I'm the only believer in my entire community, and I'm taking this back. There are literally unreached peoples that are being reached with the gospel of Jesus. There was an update yesterday from James in the Ivory Coast. He said, I just want you guys to know. Here's what's happening as a result of the training, and you see them baptizing new believers in their churches. It's, it's amazing to see what God can do when you place the seed of the word into people, into faithful men and women. Amen? So thank you for being a part of that. Um, I, I should have brought a video, but I, but I forgot, so I'm sorry. Um, and so I hope, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to send some stuff along. And, and I know Jenny's going to be reporting on the recent training in Columbia. But I just want to say thank you. Thank you to Lucy for being a part of this. Thank you to Lucy for making it possible. And we are extremely, extremely grateful. So uh, if, you've had, if you've got your Bibles and you've already turned over to John chapter 12, thank you to Art for reading that passage for us. I'd like to pray before we get started and just ask the Lord that he would um, bless this time that we have together in his word. Let's pray. Well, Father, you always say through your word in numerous places that, Lord, in our weakness, in our humility, in our need, that we find you strong and we find you able. And Lord, what I feel this morning is incredibly weak as I stand before your people to preach from your word. I have nothing in and of myself that I could say to them that would change a heart, but you do. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, 
of joint and marrow, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so I pray, God, this morning that you would speak through your word. That's what we're asking you to do, that you would empower me simply to be faithful. That you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we are washed in your word. Lord, the last thing we need is a message from a man. What we need is a word from God. Lord, we ask you to speak this morning. There may be some here who are lost. They have never come into a saving relationship with Jesus. They have never seen the beauty of Christ. And I pray that this morning that the word would do the work of cutting off the numbing effect of sin so that they feel the weight of their own sinfulness before a holy God. There are some here who are despairing and nobody knows it. And I pray that as your word goes forth that you would multiply it, Lord, to meet their needs in a way that only you can do. Some here this morning are straying from you. They're believers, but they know they're not walking with you the way that they ought, the way that you've called them to. I pray that you would speak into their lives this morning and that it would be repentance. And Lord, a thousand other needs that I do not know of, but you do. And your word is fit and sufficient to meet all of them. So I ask, Lord, as your word goes forth, that you would do that. And that you would do it for the glory of Jesus. In his name, amen. Recently, I was... um, Actually, this was last weekend. I was asked about our church, um, the church I now pastor, which is Comunidad en Cristo, and um, that there was some friends that had gathered, and we were talking, and they asked me about, uh, you know, just tell the story of how how it got started. And as I recounted the story of how our church was birthed and the faithfulness of God over the last five years, running up on six years, I was just swept again by the emotion of it all, and seeing the faithfulness of God. Again and again and again and again as he met, has met our needs as we have fallen on our faces and prayed. Many of you know some of the story of our church and you know uh, a little bit about where our church is now located. But for those of you who don't, we, our church um, was uh, uh, basically given the opportunity to meet in a building in Nutbush. Uh, in year three of our existence, a little, some of you know a little bit about Nutbush. It is a gang-infested, drug-riddled prostitution ring um, where people are killed brutally all of the time. And I could tell you story after story after story of serving there. And you see, the, you see open sin and all of its effects all the time. There are some communities where sin is hidden a little bit better. This is not one of them. And as we have served there, here's what we've become keenly aware of. We do not have anything, no power, no capacity to reach these people apart from falling on our faces and fasting and praying and saying, God, we can't. And some of you are keenly aware of that too because you know that here in this community it is absolutely no different. The sin expression may be different, but the heart is not. And you know that apart from falling on your face and seeing God move, there is absolutely nothing we can do to reach somebody's heart. 
And yet, as we have fasted and prayed, I could give you story after story after story after story of how God has been faithful to come and meet us and do the impossible. We recently had a lady, you can see her house from the church parking lot. Her son was killed in front of her house, shot dead two years ago. I've never seen anybody like her husband be as bitter and as vengeful as, uh, I've just never seen anybody in that condition. They're still in a bitter court battle over it, and yet one of the ladies in our church began to love on her. Her name's Regina, this, this, um, this lady that lives in the community. And uh, little by little, as she loved on her and as, as prayers were going up for Regina, Regina came to Christ, and she got saved radically, and now she is a totally different person, still living in the community. And she told us the other day, she said, this is the anniversary. My son, my son would have been 30-some-odd today if he were still alive, and she dealt with it with such grace. And she got baptized recently, and this is, she's probably 75, and this is the power of the gospel that comes subsequent to us falling on our faces and praying. See, God's able. God is able, isn't he? But I want to tell you something. Fruit-bearing always comes after we're, we've been praying and fasting. Isn't that true? Fruit-bearing comes as we pray and fast and seek God's face. And I want to tell you, this is not just something that you see in practical application in our lives. This is something that the Bible bears out as well. I want to take you on a little bit of a journey here to show you that fruit-bearing, biblically, always comes after we pray and fast together. Particularly in the, uh, in the book of Acts, I want to show you how Luke portrays this pattern all throughout the birth and growth and movement of the early church. So if you join me in Acts chapter 1, we're going to start in Acts chapter 1 uh, verse 14, and I'm going to take us quickly through this. But this is uh, after Jesus has ascended, and the disciples were with him for three years, and he says, now I'm going back to the Father, resurrection, now I'm about to ascend, and I want you to know that I don't think you're ready yet, you need to wait. Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes into what they're to wait for, the promise of the Father that was going to come upon them, which of course was the Holy Spirit with which they would be baptized in the day of Pentecost. And he tells them, Acts 1.8, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But yet I want you to wait. And apparently the disciples were listening whenever Jesus had instructed them on prayer back in Luke chapter 11. Because in Luke eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus told the disciples this, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the, finish it, Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So as Jesus says, I want you to wait for the promise that's going to come upon you, they said, well, what should we do? They knew exactly what to do, so they started praying. And as they prayed together, here's what Acts 1.14 says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And what was the result of them praying together? There was fruit that was born when you turn the page into Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls come to Christ. Would you say that's fruit? Amen. Well, it doesn't stop there. In Acts chapter 3, there is a man who is lame. He's crippled. He's sitting by the gate, and Peter and John walk by, and he asks them for alms, and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk, man. And he gets up and walks, and clinging to them, they go bounding into the temple, and Peter stands up and says, I want you to know this is not any power of mine, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man has been healed. And the authorities say, we thought we snuffed that out. 
throw them in jail. So they threw them in jail, and later they were released, and they go back to the church. And what's going to be the church's response? Threatened. They're about to lose something. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. What happened at the resu- as the result of prayer? Fruit was born. Speaking the word of God with boldness. Amen? Then in Acts chapter 12, Peter can't keep himself out of prison. He's in prison yet again. He gets tapped on the shoulder at night, and there's an angel that starts walking him out of the jail, and he thinks he's in a vision until he gets outside of the jail and realizes this is real life. He goes to John Mark's house, and guess what the church is doing? They're having an all-night prayer meeting. And Peter knocks at the door, and they think, oh, no, it's just his angel. You ever read that part and thought, wow. No, God answered your prayer. And Peter comes in and says, tell James and all the brothers that I've been released, but hey, i got to get going because i got fruit to bear, right? Church has got to go forward. What happened as a result of prayer? Fruit was born. Then you go to Acts chapter 13, and you see this guy named Saul. He's praying at the church of Antioch. Antioch was probably a result of the Christian diaspora in Jerusalem due to the persecution of which Paul was a part. And now he, who was one of the principal persecutors, is praying in a church made up of those whom he persecuted. And as he's praying and fasting, the Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've given them to do. And all of Asia Minor, there is fruit born. Amen? And then as Paul, in his first missionary journey, he gets stoned and left for dead in Lystra and Derby, And they carry him outside the city. And he, when he wakes up, he tells, the, he tells the guys who are with him, we got to go back. I mean, has this guy lost his mind? So they go back to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidia, Antioch, and he's instituting elders in all of the churches that have been planted. And this is what he says in Acts 14.23, Luke commenting on it. He says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What happened as a result of the prayers and fasting? Elders were put into these churches who had responsibility to bear fruit in their own context. How many passages do we need to see this? Fruit bearing always comes as a result of prayer and fasting. It will happen here. It will happen in this context. It will happen in any context. Paul was able to say of his own ministry in Romans chapter 15, I have fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. That's a swath of 1,500 miles. What's he mean? He means I have planted churches in which there are leaders and they are bearing fruit in their own context and they're doing it for Jesus. Fruit bearing always comes as a result of prayer and fasting. It's not only what we see in practical life, it's what we see as the biblical pattern. But here's the reason, and I really want you to hold on to this this morning. This could not be more important. The reason prayer and fasting is always the agent through which God bears fruit through the lives of his disciples is because prayer and fasting is always the agent through which he kills his disciples. Prayer and fasting is always the agent of death in our lives, isn't it? This shouldn't surprise us. 
We see this in Jesus, when Jesus is talking about the model prayer. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, Jesus is talking to them about this is how you should pray. Don't pray like the Pharisees who stand on the street corners. They want to be seen. They have received their reward in full. And don't pray like the Gentiles who use vain repetition. No, no, no. When you pray, go into the closet And meet with your Father, and here's what you say. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Let's see. That's how you pray. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. What Jesus is not saying is what we see often in contexts such as Catholic contexts where they say, now when you sin, say the Lord's Prayer ten times. I think that's what he meant. When you sin... Or when you're praying, just use this formula. No, 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 I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is the attitude in which you should pray should be like this. Father, in everything I'm about to pray, my greatest desire is that your name be exalted. In fact, it's an exhortation. Exalt your name in everything I'm about to pray. And I know that your name will be exalted when your kingdom come. And what does it look like when the kingdom comes? It looks like his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So Father, conform everything I'm about to pray to your will. Now implicit in that is a necessary death. Because if you are going to pray like that, there's only one way, and you have to die to your name, your kingdom, and your will so that his name, his kingdom, and his will can live through you. Amen? A death to my desires. A death to my motives. A death to my kingdom and my autonomy and my sovereignty and my dreams so that he can live in me, so that his kingdom and his sovereignty and his will and his desires and his goals and his motives have the preeminence. There's a death that has to occur. On this side is prayer and fasting. On this side is fruit bearing. But in the middle is what we don't want. And that is why I would defy anybody to say that you can really pray if you have something that you do not want to surrender to him. You come to pray, you know how it is. You come to pray, in in Spanish this is called poniendo el dedo en la llaga. (laughs) God gets his finger and he puts it in that sore. That ever happened to you while you're praying? You got that little sore spot and God just goes, doom. You back off praying. You come back. Everything's going well for about five minutes. Right back to that spot. Right? Because there's a death that has to occur. And it is, it's only in our death that the life of Jesus begins to flow through us in such a way that fruit bearing occurs. This is not new to us. This is what Jesus taught when he used the example of a vine and branches, right? If you get connected to the vine such that the life of God is flowing through you, fruit bearing is going to happen. But there's an obstacle in the way, and it's called your life. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 1 to 2, and then 5, he says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And then verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if I were to say to you this morning what God wants for your life, here's what he wants. He wants you to die so that you can live. And what's he want for this church? He wants this church to die so this church can live. 
See, I think here in John chapter 12, really what Jesus has in mind are two different deaths. In John chapter 12, 24, read again, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, in verse 24, I think Jesus is referring to his own death. And I say that because of the context in John 12, 23. Look what Jesus says here in John 12, 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you've read the Gospel of John, and I think you guys preached all the way through the Gospel of John, correct? So if you've read much through the Gospel, you know that when the word hour is used, it's always a reference to Jesus' death. Uh, For instance, in John 2.20, 7.30, and 8.20, Jesus says that his hour has not come. And that means that no matter what you're about to do to me right now, you're not going to take me to the cross because it's not the Father's timing yet. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I preached, <laughs> I preached in a uh, Hispanic context, John chapter 2, where Jesus tells his mother, Mary, he says, what does this have to do with me, woman? My hour has not come. Uh, that, was a, that was an interesting Sunday. So anyway, Jesus, when he's speaking of his hour, is speaking of his death. But then he makes it even more explicit in passages like John 13, 1, John 12, 27, and John 17, 1, where he talks about his hour this way. Look at John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. His hour spoke of his death. And if his hour is speaking of his death, that, me, that makes what he says in verse 24, or verse 23, excuse me, all the more paradoxical. John 12, 23 again, listen to this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If hour is referring to his death, a horrific crucifixion, how is it that glory is attached to that? Tell me what the world thinks is glory. It's not that. Glory for the world is power, prestige, notoriety. Jesus says, glory's not coming to me that way. Glory's coming to me through debasement. Glory to me is coming through shame, through death, through a horrific crucifixion. That's that's the way glory's coming to me. It's exactly what we see in the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Listen to this. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see how this is happening? For this reason also. What reason? That he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Cross glory. And the cross was glorifying for Jesus because the cross glorified God. Did you see the end of this passage? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you've got your Bibles, I want to show you in a place that's uh, even, even more clear. Go to John 17. Uh, John chapter 17. 
want to show you how Jesus prayed about his own death. John chapter 17, listen to this, verses 1 to 2. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Watch this, hour, death. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I want to make sure you're tracking with me. Jesus' glory is coming through the cross, and the cross was glorifying to Jesus because God was glorified in it. Now the question is, why or how was God glorified in the cross? There are a lot of different ways that you could answer that, but I'm going to give you one because it bore fruit. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples as sort of an axiomatic statement in John 15, 8. He says, my father is glorified by this. See this? Father glory, glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What glorifies God? Bearing fruit. And Jesus says glory's coming through the cross because what's going to happen on the backside of the cross is fruit's going to happen. Amen? Glory, cross, fruit. You see it? Now here's the question. How is it that the cross bore fruit? I just want to take you on a little journey because you've got to see this. This is so good. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to show you the way that Paul refers to Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 22 to 23. Uh, and we're going to have to go and see a little bit of a Hebrew festival or an Israelite festival in order to get Paul's context here. But this is 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 23. Listen to this, or 24. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, hold on to that, after those who are, and after that those who are Christ's that is coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now here's the question. Why does Paul refer to Jesus as first fruits? Now you all are well educated in the Bible and probably know this already, but I want you to go on a journey with me back to Leviticus. Back to Leviticus and there was a festival in the uh, Israelite nation that God had instituted to be celebrated every year that was called the Feast of First Fruits. If you can join me in Leviticus chapter 23, Leviticus chapter 23, we're going to see a little bit about this feast and Paul's context for calling Jesus the first fruits. Now, this feast happened after Passover Sabbath. That's important. The Feast of First Fruits happened after Passover Sabbath. Now, you all remember what the Passover was. The Passover was the celebration of what God did to free his people in Egypt by sending the angel of death, the ultimate and last plague, to sweep over the houses of Egypt and kill the firstborn, but to preserve the houses in Goshen where there was blood of a lamb placed upon the doorpost and the lintel. You guys remember the Passover, okay? So there's a celebration of the Passover that's happening this week leading up, and then there's the, there's the actual celebration of the Passover on the Sabbath day, which this, in this case would be Saturday. Now, the day following, which would be Sunday, was the celebration or the feast of first fruits. And I want to read, you about the, I want to read to you about this feast in Leviticus 23, 9 to 11. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now get the context here. He's saying, When you enter into the land of promise, I want you to do this every year. When, you, when you've planted a crop and there's first fruits that have sprung up from the ground, take those first fruits and present it to the Lord as an offering. Now, you can imagine in a culture that was dependent upon this crop, this was a great vote of confidence because they're essentially saying, we're going to offer the first part of this, trusting that you're going to bring the harvest. If your kids hadn't eaten in a while, this would be a tough thing to do. So here's a wave offering that the people make the day after Sabbath Passover. Okay? Now, 50 days later, there's another feast that's called the Feast of Pentecost, which means 50. The Feast of Pentecost was a feast of the harvest. It was a celebration that God had come through on giving them the harvest that they had basically had faith for by offering those first fruits. Leviticus 23, 16, listen to this. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So let's get the timeline here. Passover week, Passover Sabbath that celebrates the blood of the Lamb that set God's people free. Sunday, first fruits, giving thanks for plants that have sprung up from the ground. Fifty days later, harvest. Does that sound even remotely familiar? When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Passover Lamb. What week did Jesus die? Passover week. What day did he die? Friday. Reposes in hope. Friday. Passover, Sabbath, Saturday. Did anything significant happen on Sunday? (laughs) Amen. Like a plant that springs up from the ground, first fruits of the harvest. Paul looks at that and he says, Jesus. And how long was Jesus here after he was resurrected? 40 days. Where do we find that? Acts chapter 1 verse 3. For a period of 40 days he was here giving them proofs concerning his resurrection. And then they start praying for how many days? 10 days. Because what happens in Acts chapter 2? Pentecost. When all of the Jews have gathered to celebrate the harvest and there's a harvest of souls that day. Where people were brought from their spiritual death and resurrected into spiritual life. And the harvest goes on, does it not? You are a product of this harvest. I am a product of this harvest. And one day we will follow our risen Savior who was the first fruits. And when he calls, we will be, a risen, will be risen from the grave. And we will find him giving us a new body in the likeness of his resurrected body. And it will be the greatest harvest you've ever seen. Passover, first fruits, harvest. Let me ask you, did the cross bring about any fruit? Paul says, oh yeah first fruits and the harvest goes on and you can't imagine what you will see when the trumpet blasts and all the dead in Christ rise just imagine that day imagine it don't you live for that day fruit Jesus says that's why I got to be sown into the earth I got to be the first fruits of a new harvest that's going to happen in a new humanity And then he looks at his disciples and he says, and you're going to die too. 
Can you imagine? They're sitting there. They don't get this fully. And they're listening to Jesus say, i got to be sown in the earth like a seed because i got to die and then bear fruit. And he says, and you're joining me. Mercy. Look what he says next. John chapter 12, verse 25, he says, He who loves his life loses it. But he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Love, hate. Live, die. Now, this is what I think Jesus is saying when he's, he's talking about this love and hate language. I think he's saying, you know, you all are infected. The entire humanity is infected with this illusion that you are really living. Isn't that what Satan told Eve? The bottom, the absolute bottom of the temptation to them was not eat the fruit, it looks good. The bottom was Genesis 3, 5. In the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He's hiding something from you. What you really need to live is to have this knowledge that belongs to him and to steal his throne and to flip around the image of God and fall in love with yourself as God, and that's the life. And Jesus says, if you love that life, you lose it. If that's the life you love. But if you have seen the beauty of Christ over against you being God and you want to bow your knees to him as Lord, oh, you can follow And he follows it up by saying this in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And the rhetorical question, isn't it, is where are you going? I can almost hear Jesus saying, you know where I'm going. You know where I'm going. I'm going cross, and then I'm going crown. And it's coming the same way for you. Crown never comes before cross. I think Jesus is saying to them, you're united to me. As I read the New Testament, I just want to take kind of a pause and jump. As I read the New Testament, if if you were to sum up the whole of the Christian life, I think the best New Testament phrase to do it, and actually what we find most often in the Pauline, uh, in the the Pauline corpus, is this phrase, in Christ. In Christ. Christ from which we draw out that blessed doctrine of the union that we have with Jesus. I want to tell you something, Christians, this morning. Listen to me very closely. Whenever you were born again, whenever God engendered faith in you through the living and abiding word of God and you placed faith in Christ, in that moment you were baptized into his body and united with Christ such that all that he is and all that he accomplished became yours. You are so united to Christ that God literally sees you in Christ. Y'all didn't hear that. I'm going to have to say it again. For those in the back, listen. Christian, listen to me. Whenever you came to faith and you put faith in Christ, he united you to him such that all that he has is yours. His righteousness is yours. His life is yours. His inheritance is yours. His glory is yours. Listen to Romans chapter 8. I can't get over this. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are, listen to this, in Christ Jesus. That's union with him. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That's just glory right there, right? Here's, here's what he's saying. No condemnation if you're in Christ. Here's the reason. What the law could not do, weak as it was through our sinfulness, God did sending his own son, incarnate son of God, who bore up the law, all of the weight of it. He said in Matthew 5, 17, I've not come to, a, to annul the law. I have come to what? Fill it up completely. He literally obeyed completely and perfectly. He was what he said in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The only one who could do that, Jesus did it. And then he died under the weight of the curse of the law that he did not deserve for you and for me and was raised from the grave in vindication of the sufficiency of his death such that now he sits at the right hand of the Father willing and able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. Why? Because when we put faith in him, Everything that he accomplishes is credited to us. All of the perfection of his obedience, all of the substitutionary death in our place, such that there is absolutely not one drop of the wrath of God that's left for me because he said it's finished, paid in full. No condemnation because I'm in Christ. Amen? But surely, if we believe that we are so united to him, we wouldn't forget that if his righteousness is ours and his life is ours and his glory is ours, that his death is ours too. His death is yours both positionally and practically. And I want you to get this. His death is yours positionally and practically. When Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. I think Paul means I am so united to him that when he died, I died. I was there. United to Christ, your old man in Christ has been put to death. That's your position before God. And the rest of your life is a becoming of what you already are in Christ. This is the way that Romans 6 puts it. Romans chapter 6. Listen to verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Your position is that you are dead And God says, now I'm calling you practically, live like that's true of you. We, um, Ashley and I had our first trip without kids in seven years uh, this week, and it was glorious, I just want to tell you. Uh, It was wonderful. And I actually think the whole reason that we were there was not simply that we would have 
a time to rest. And, and we actually thought we're tired because we're sleeping too much, I think, uh, which maybe our bodies are not adjusted to that yet. I don't know. Anyway, it's all gone now. So uh, we're back in, the, back in the swing. But I actually think one of the reasons that we were there, we went to see the Grand Canyon, is for the conversation that I had with one of our tour guides. Um, we decided to take a tour of the Grand Canyon, and we had, we had this tour, and it was, it was a great tour. Uh, saved us a lot of trouble because we had no idea what we were doing. And there was a lady that came along, and the tour guide said, yeah, she's just coming along to see if she's interested in doing this. We're not sure. She ended up falling asleep on the way to the Grand Canyon. We thought it might not be cut out for her. But, but anyway, um, like snoring, falling asleep. So we thought, it's probably not. So. She found out in the course of conversation that I'm a pastor, and she began to ask some questions, which I obviously was, was glad to field her questions. She said, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? I said, well, probably John 6.35. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. She said, well, who do you identify most with in the Bible? And the guy said, just make sure it's not Judas. And I thought, yeah, that's a fairly good point. Fairly good point. I said, I don't know, maybe John. She said, well, you know, I, I find myself between Peter and Mother Mary. And so we started talking about her religious background. And the more that she asked the more it came clear to me that she was asking, how do you develop a relationship with God? She said, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. She was very confused. But as I was talking to her, I had the opportunity and the privilege to say this. You are not right with God, nor do you become the person that he wants you to be by being baptized or being a part of the church or going through some rite and ritual not by your works or anything that you could bring to God. It is solely based upon the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you place your faith in him, you become so united to him that all that is his becomes yours. And by the end of it, she said, so you're saying it's 100% by faith. I said, we finally got it, and we got to the hotel. Y'all pray for Patricia. I think that's the reason we were there. Union with Jesus. But we're so united to him that we're united in his death. And he's telling you, you've been crucified with Christ, but you live. Your old self was done away with. It was put to death and now live as if that's true of you. Do Luke 9.23 based on the fact that positionally you are already dead in Christ, which is pick up your cross and follow him. Die to yourself every day because that's the only way the life of Christ is going to flow through you. And what happens when life flows through you is that fruit is born in your life. And I think that Jesus, at least one way that he would have fruit born in our lives, is that when we begin to die and the life of Jesus flows in us, we begin, to, we begin to care about the harvest that he died to produce. Did you hear that? When we die and the life of Jesus flows in us, we begin to care about the harvest that he died to produce. You might remember Jesus said in John four thirty five, Do you not say... To his disciples, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes 
Look on the fields, they are white for harvest. Jesus said to his disciples in John 10, 16, he said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, meaning not of Israel. I must, I love that language, I must bring them also so that they will be one flock with one shepherd. And my question is, what do you mean by the must? I must bring them also. Question, how are you going to do that, Jesus? I'm going to get my people to die to themselves so they care about the harvest I died to produce, and I'm going to send them to go find my sheep in every nation. I don't have time to do this. I'm going to do it anyway. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says, he says, in my afflictions, I am filling up up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That's a very interesting passage. Without taking all of the time needed to tell you why I believe this, there's another passage in the New Testament in Philippians 2 that's got a very similar word construction, but here's what I think Paul is saying. I think Paul is saying there's nothing lacking in the sufferings of Jesus in the sense that he didn't suffer enough to purchase a people for himself. No, 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 not that. He definitely suffered enough, paid in full. But what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ is the presentation of his afflictions for the people for whom he died. And Paul saw himself when he was suffering to bring the gospel out into the harvest for the people for whom Christ died. He saw himself as almost reliving the sufferings of Christ before them so that they would see Jesus had died for them. His sufferings were almost a living presentation of what Christ had suffered for them. And God is calling his people and saying, die to yourself. It's never going to be easy to take the gospel to the nations. It's never going to be easy to take the gospel to your neighbor. But as you are dying to yourself, and even in your suffering for the sake of Christ, there are many who will see the afflictions of Jesus in you fruit will be born. Fruit bearing always comes through death. And it was that way with Jesus. It is that way with those who are united to Jesus. And it will never change. So here's the summons. The summons is based upon who we are in Christ, Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, anyone. That includes the most seasoned Christian or the person who is considering following Jesus. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What is it that God wants in your life? How is it that he wants you to die? What's the fruit that he has for you to bear that's going to only be possible when you die? I'm going to pray for us that the Lord would take this and that he would apply it to each and every life individually, to those who have never died and to those who need to die again. Let's pray. If you found this message helpful, 
check us out at lucybaptist.com where you can find other resources or learn more about our church. We hope and pray that this message has helped you grow in your knowledge of God and in your relationship with Him.